Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the 1099. As always, I'm your host, Joseph Noop, and I am just so glad that you guys are here with us for another episode. I hope you are all are staying safe and cozy uh, here during quarantine apalooza, uh, COVID apocalypse. Uh, it is it is a tumultuous time for everyone, uh, hunting down toilet paper, finding secret toilet paper in your closet, as my roommate did. Uh, <laughs> And uh, I, I am just so glad that we are all, for the most part, doing okay, because uh, I know things can't be easy. But you know what? Today is going to be a great day for uh, a really meaningful conversation, I think. Today, I have the now former lead writer on Overwatch, Mr. Michael Chu. Michael, how are you, man? Hey, I'm, uh, I'm hanging in there, kind of getting by with this current uh, state we're living in. But uh, yeah, not too bad. Happy to talk to you today. Yeah, thank you so much, man. It's uh, you. I, I, I will admit, you were one of those uh, guests that I'm like, you know what? He probably won't even like respond to the DM, but like, let me shoot for the moon. And I was so happy and surprised to see you like uh, be be really eager, especially like you know after. So we're we're here effectively to kind of celebrate and reflect on 20 years at Blizzard. Uh, you recently announced that you were uh, stepping away from Blizzard to pursue some other projects. And I just thought like, wow, 20 years at one of the most influential game companies in the entire world. And I actually got to um, shortly before I think you announced uh, you're stepping down. I got to go to the Blizzard campus there in Irvine to go preview Echo, the new hero, uh, Hero 32 in Overwatch. And I guess the the last hero we'll get in Overwatch 1 before Overwatch 2 hits us. And uh, to me, that place was just the like the quintessential game studio that you think like you watch a show like um, uh, Mythic Quest on Apple TV or you watch like any other like comedy or sitcom or something where they like go to a, a tech studio and you're like oh this is exactly what I envisioned like giant statues of their famous characters uh, everyone is wearing like the t-shirt from their game's brand it was uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it, it definitely was a bit of a, a starstruck moment for me so I thought who better to tell me like what it's actually like to be there and to for lack of a better word i guess like grow up there in a way too uh yeah, I mean, over the last 20 years uh yeah there's yeah. two funny there's two funny numbers that go along with that you know i uh i worked at, at blizzard for about 18 years um, which means that it my career at blizzard sort of has become an adult and you know is now leaving the nest and also, I basically spent my entire adult life working, you know, at Blizzard. So, yeah, definitely, uh, I, I think I've, I've grown up in that environment. And, you know, before we dive into the Blizzard stuff, I would love to, you know, taking a page out of uh, 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 people who play gay or people who make games and, and those kinds of podcasts, I really want to get to know who you are as a person before Blizzard came into your life. Uh, where, I assume, did you grow up in California uh, or elsewhere? Yeah, I grew up in Southern California, um, mostly in Orange County is um, where I've spent most of my life. But yeah, I was born in, in a, a little town outside in the Inland Empire, Riverside. And uh, that's where, you know, got my start as a human being. And then after that, yeah, mostly in, in Orange County. Um, I live on the same street that I spent uh, most of my life growing up still. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> 
Like, so, so like not, yeah, I guess, you know, it's, it's funny to think about like, I'm from Illinois originally. So like, of course I'm, uh, I, I'm the classic, like, I just want to move away from mom and dad, uh, kind of thing. But California is especially a, a LA County kind of area or orange County kind of area. I imagine it's, it's, uh, gotta be a different kind of growing up. So you, you're still pretty like, uh, geographically close to like your parents. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think and a lot of people who live in Southern California will understand this, you get spoiled by the, by the weather and, and just mm-hmm. living in this beautiful place. And it's hard to imagine going anywhere else. So yeah, I, I really haven't moved too far <laughs> in my life. What did your, uh, what did your parents do? Oh, um, my dad was a physicist and a professor at the uh, University of California in wow. Riverside. And uh, my mom was a systems programmer. Okay, so there's there's a lot of science and like technology systems kind of in that background. It's not like like my dad is a trucker and my mom is a nurse. So like me becoming a like games journalist was just not not maybe in the top ten things that they expected to happen. So <laughs> what what was it like having a uh, you said a professor uh, for a dad and uh, a like systems programmer for a mom? Yeah, so definitely there was a lot of science and engineering and, and that sort of thing um, when I was growing up. You know, my my parents probably had visions of me, you know, pursuing one of those interests. Um, I had talked a lot about, you know, computer. I was really interested in computers. I basically spent all of my conscious life around computers and messing around with them. So, you know, that, that, was, a, that was a big part for me. Um, but, you know, I also, my parents really believed in giving me a well-rounded kind of education and, and group of interests. So, you know, they pushed me a lot to do music. Music was a really big part of my life, continues to be a big part of my life. But yeah, so I think my parents knew that I, I like playing video games. They might have thought that I spent a little bit too much time playing video games and maybe not enough time <laughs> studying. So I think when uh, when I, you know, sort of announced that I, I was going to pursue that as, as my career, I think there was a lot of, oh, yeah, like, that's a, is that actually a career path? that is a career path. And, you know, I, honestly, for me too, I was like, I hope so. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think that the path into the game industry and the paths to, you know, succeed in the game industry were certainly a lot less clear back then. I think there's a little more clarity and it's a little bit more considered a respectable, if not desirable job these days. <laughs> you mentioned uh, music was a big part of your life growing up. And like, same for me too. I, I was part of band and chorus and I even like joined the, my high school's show choir, uh, dancing and singing in like regional competitions and everything. And like, you know, the, like anything in your youth, you look back on it with a, a bit of fondness and a little bit of cringiness. Uh, but like f- for the most part, music like really translated into, you know, like, well, I, I, I love the art and I know that like, like here I am amidst this big production of it. I know that this can be a, a part of my career was, uh, were you like a, a band kid, a choir kid or something? So I actually played cello and Ooh. amusingly, you know, before I thought I would be working in games, my original career aspiration was that I wanted to be a professional cellist. And oh, I, wow. studied, I studied um, quite seriously, actually, even when I started going to college, I was sort of splitting my time between um, computer science and then also um, studying, you know, cello. And so that was like my first goal in life. And then that slowly evolved once I realized that I really like these video games, this video game thing. And I, I probably heard the soundtrack for Final Fantasy three or something. And I was like, oh, you know what? Maybe I can combine these things. Maybe I could do like composition. So yeah, for me, music was something that I was extremely serious about and something that 
I had seriously considered it becoming my actual career. That's interesting. So you could, you could have ended up being the, uh, the next Austin Wintery or like Jessica Curry or something like that, working with, uh, uh, get, getting out of the, the beliefs and the, the like more video game tone music and more into the classical actual orchestral arrangements, huh? Yeah, maybe I, I, I will say my, um, my classes in music theory and stuff, those didn't stick quite as well as, uh, no. <laughs> the uh, performance part for me. So I started to wonder if my if my aspirations were were really practical or wise. Yeah, what were uh, what were the games that you grew up playing? What were the things that like you really remember like plopping your butt down in front of the like CRT television and uh, uh, like really really falling in love with as a kid? I have a few like earlier formative game moments. Um, I don't think they're the ones that quite set me on the path that I ended up going on, but. I, I really vividly remember playing um, my Nintendo when I had that. Like, that was a big thing. And the other thing was playing text adventure games. Those left this really strong impression in my mind. I still really um, have a fondness for, like, Zork and, and that whole series. Mm. Um, Planetfall uh, was another text adventure game that really interested me. And there was something about them that I thought was so cool. Probably, you know, the, the storytelling and the text and, and kind of the fun mysteries and puzzles. But... If you're if you're if you're saying like which games do I think really affected me, um, for me I feel like I grew up in the golden age of Japanese role playing games, and so there's like a trilogy that really I think catapulted my interest in kind of games as as these story and, and world building things, which were Final Fantasy three, Final Fantasy six, um, Chrono Trigger, and Earthbound, which in my mind all came out within a reasonably close time <laughs> to each other. I realize that that might not actually be true. But I yeah, feel like uh, those yeah. three games really like set the mind on fire and they really excited me. And to this day, I still absolutely love them. I've replayed them all multiple times. I think they, I think all three of them still hold up. Um, and then the, the last game I would add to that, and I, was, I guess I was probably a little bit older when it came out, um, was Grim Fandango. Mm. And again, you know, I love adventure games and, and, and the old text adventure games. But Grim Fandango had this original world which I thought was so amazing. The art was gorgeous. And then the script and the story, I also just felt like was, you know, top class, could have been a movie, but it was a game. And I think, you know, that kind of birth of these interactive worlds and story narrative driven video games really, um, really got my attention. There's there's something really special about those uh, kind of classic top down RPG adventure games when you sink your teeth into them as a kid, I think. And, you know, like for me, that might've been something like, like Pokemon uh, silver and gold where, you know, I, I am uh, just a normal suburban kid. Uh, and, but here I get to go on this uh, journey across like an entire, you know, continent or country or region or something uh, and meet people. And like, really you, you begin to form like, well, what would my identity be like once I'm out on my own kind of thing? Uh, rather than, you know, going to school and coming back immediately home and maybe like going down the street to play with a friend. So uh, I think I think like drag, were you ever like a Dragon Quest kid too? You know, I ended up playing Dragon Quest much later in my life mm -hmm. and I, I grew to really enjoy them. I think I, I played them mostly through the uh, DS remakes and then obviously I've played the more recent ones. Uh, I almost jumped on, the, the point where I almost jumped onto the series was seven but I remember that one of my friends told me like, ooh, you know, 
do you like grinding? And I'm like, ah, not really. Like, no. yeah, maybe stick with the Final Fantasies for now. So um, I sort of, I sort of missed that, um, and I've, I've been trying to catch up uh, more recently. You should, um, even though you're not like necessarily a huge Dragon Quest person, uh, watch the the Netflix Dragon Quest movie. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's called Your St- Dragon or like yeah, Dragon Quest Your Story. Uh, I won't spoil it, but uh, it, it ends up culminating with a really like surprisingly touching uh, uh, kind of ref- re- personal reflection on like what these kinds of adventure RPG games uh, did for, uh, you know, young people growing up, whether it was Chrono Trigger or uh, the fi- the early Final Fantasies and like how, how real some of all that felt for us. So, uh, yeah. What did your, uh, so you mentioned um, going to, you're a UCLA grad, right? And uh, you went for co- like computer tech of some sort? So not actually a grad, um, but no? I oh, went, okay. yeah, I went to the uh, School of Engineering for computer science. You know, at the time, like I said, whether or not you could get a job in the game industry or how you could get a job in the game industry was sort of a mystery to me. And so I figured if I got a degree, you know, I could do some programming work, you know, for a tech company or something. So that was sort of my my fallback plan, having no real idea how I could pursue this dream that I had. So that so it, it, at that time, I guess like two like two uh, not before two thousand. So this is the nineteen nineties, basically. The nineties, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, good lord, good lord. Uh, I. I'll make you feel ancient. I was born in 1992, but <laughs> uh, I I gotta imagine, yeah, like you said, that at that time, getting a career in games looked a lot different than it does today. Where you know, of course, we have conferences like GDC and and multiple uh, game design programs all over North America and Europe. Uh, wh- what did when you think back on your time? at UCLA and like starting to dig into, you know, what it meant to, uh, to make games or at least work with computers like that. What strikes you about, uh, what, what do you think are like the biggest differences from then and now? I think the biggest thing has to be just the availability of information, right? It was hard Mm -hmm. even to find out, you know, how, what kind of video game jobs there were. I feel like most of the knowledge that I had was like from reading, Nintendo Power and and like other game magazines where every once in a while they do a bit behind the scenes and be like, oh, okay, it seems like there's a lot of programmers. You know, I think that that's the job. So, and then there was like the accessibility, which is like, you know, did you really have any sense of where a game company was? The hilarious thing about that is that it turned out that Blizzard was, I could see Blizzard from my backyard, but I just never knew. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, so there was that. And then, you know, I think the other big difference is the sort of, I, actually, I'd say there's two big differences. One are the different you know, paths that people can take into the game industry. There are all these programs now where people can actually learn about game development before becoming professional. And I remember, to me, I think the only option I had ever heard of was that I read, again, in Nintendo Power about DigiPen. I'm like, wow, that sounds so amazing. But again, who knows you know, how, how you manage to make that happen. And I think the other thing, just the ability now to make your own games and kind of experiment and tinker on your own with what you have available, I think is much greater than what was available at the time. It, it does kind of feel like, um, like I, I interviewed some of the guys from Neversoft uh, for like a, a 20 year or 20 or 25 year like retrospective on Tony Hawk. 
And uh, it really does feel like a lot of those kinds of early studios were really just like maybe a couple of guys uh, working at like a larger sort of broader tech company. And they're all just like uh, pissed off at their boss. And they're like, eh, we're going to go do our own thing. And like, that's, it, it almost feels like indie, but then those companies, you know, grow huge over the next you know, decade or so and become the triple the A monoliths that we uh, come to be more familiar with. Uh, did it, did it feel like you had a, community of other developers that you could like chat with or was that did it kind of feel more lonely and isolated i would definitely say lonely and isolated you know at most there were people that i would play games with in the dorms like i think that was the the great extent of of my network as it were and you know the the internet was was becoming more of a thing then so you could go on the internet and you could you know chat rooms or forums or something but as far as like people finding people who are like, Hey, let's make games. Yeah. That was, that was not really something that I, I had access to. Did you have any, uh, I, I always like to ask people about their, their education. Uh, cause that was uh, like a really important thing for me and ended up being like one of my first kind of, uh, like beats when I was doing freelance, when I still doing freelance games media. Uh, did you ever have like a, a professor or a program that like, uh, you think really had a positive impact on you? Yeah, I I went to this summer camp when I was a teenager, oh. and I was learning about um, computer science, like not not computer science, but like theory, um, and and number theory and math theory and stuff like that. And one of the things we were messing with was this programming language called Lisp, which, um, well, I can't even really describe it at this point. But anyways, you know, the idea <laughs> was to kind of learn these fundamentals of um, computer science and theory. And we were undertaking all these projects. And so we were supposed to program these different things. And, and my, my sort of experience was like, well, I'm going to make a text adventure game. And I remember the kind of advisor teacher was like, well, that's, that's probably a little bit um, outside the scope of what you'll be able to accomplish in the time frame <laughs> and with the resources that you have. Like, he's like, you know, I don't know if, if that programming language is quite, quite right for what you're looking for. But they were really, um, they were really supportive and, and helped me try and figure it out. And so I feel like that was the first time I really remember trying to even dip my toe in the water of making something like a video game. So, so that really, that really stuck out to me. I think that was an experience that sort of made me think, you know, if I spent eight hours a day doing this, I, I'd be pretty happy. That's when you first learned about feature creep is like, oh, I can't have an open world RPG with uh, action adventure elements and uh, and and a romance mechanic and a <laughs> cooking mechanic and a uh, flying mechanic. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In that example, the feature creep was adding the non north, south, west, east directions, like adding like northeast, like, oh, that's a lot of additional oh, wow. complexity for me to have to worry yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So you mentioned too, I guess switching gears a little bit towards actual like getting the job at Blizzard. You mentioned that you could uh, you know practically see them from your backyard, and so Blizzard itself, and correct me if I'm wrong, like like itself was formed in like 1991, and then World of Warcraft was like really started in like 95. Uh, line illustrate this timeline for me. Like, what is what does Blizzard like look like as just someone looking from the outside in saying like, Oh, that might be a kind of a cool place to go one day. Yeah. It's, it's kind of crazy to think back at what it was like then to what it's become now, because obviously Blizzard has been immensely successful and has, 
has grown quite significantly since those days. I think maybe one of the interesting things to start with is that there are things that haven't changed so much, which are interesting. You know, it's still in Irvine. So the inside of the offices still look somewhat similar. Uh, I have often noticed when walking around Blizzard, even, uh, you know, in the last few years, still seeing some of the original furniture from back in the old building (laughs) hanging around. So some of that stuff is the same. I think the thing that is probably most shocking is that on that first day when I walked in, um, and and it's kind of funny because, uh, you know, they told me to show up at 9.30. So I showed up at like 9.25. And I basically waited outside for half an hour until people (laughs) showed up. But uh, one of the things that's really interesting, they were in one of these, you know, very nondescript, copied many times over um, office buildings around Irvine that you see. And Blizzard didn't actually have the entire building at the time. They shared it with um, I don't remember what the other company did, but it's it's funny to think of, about Blizzard as this as this organization that that didn't even kind of sharing space. Not yeah, even it had to share space, and office, like we were yeah. just sort of like another another you know uh, group that was that was plopped in there. So um, yeah, and I think timeline wise, it was right after the release of Diablo two, um, because I remember that when I started, one of the first things that I worked on was the. Diablo 2 103 patch. Um, so I remember it was, it was, oh, uh, yeah, that's right, 103 patch. So um, I guess that means it was a little bit later. Well, I don't know. See, time gets all messed up when you think oh, that. Yeah. But anyways, <laughs> um, that was about the time uh, that, that I had joined the company. And yeah, I, th- I think the main thing was just it was so much smaller than, uh, than it is now. What was uh what was the like uh, getting the job like? Because I think that that's a lot of the audience of the 1099 is uh, game dev students, some game devs, and a lot of like game media people. Uh, the, of course, a lot of those folks are you know wondering like when when does my you know big full time gig break come? And I gotta I gotta wonder like what it was really felt like to walk through the blizzard doors and say like okay this is this is gonna be probably my home now for a while uh and did it did it have like a a sense of elation or was it more like oh shit i am so nervous like what is this gonna be like (laughs) i feel like the thing that i had the biggest impression of was there wasn't too much preamble again I, i kind of showed up they they let me in they gave me um my key card and i was sort of off to the races i i feel like very quickly and there wasn't a lot of training or anything you were just thrown into the deep end with everyone else and we just started working so all all my my real impressions of the first few months was just like okay like we're doing this and how fast can you learn and how fast can you can you get going I think you know again when everything's smaller everyone's just expected to do a lot and uh there was a lot of stuff to be done at that time so yeah, so tell me about that. You you mentioned Diablo, and you obviously you, you worked on original World of Warcraft. Uh, what what were your day to day responsibilities? Or like, I assume that they they had to have changed day to day. But like, what were you working on? And like, what was, where was your head a lot of the time? So I started as a game tester on Diablo two, and so I spent a lot of time. Um, the way that they sort of divided up the QA department was that you would bounce from task to task. And so one day you would be working on skills, and the next day you'd be working on the world, and then the next day you'd be worried working on progression. And every once in a while you get assigned to the Macintosh team, and uh, which was a, an area where you know a lot of people didn't have a lot of knowledge. I sort of had the good luck of 
having grown up with Mac. So I quickly sort of started taking over a lot of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was a lot of checklists. We did lots of checklists, um, checking just to make sure everything was looking good in the game. I, I remember there was this one thing because Diablo 2 is a sprite based game where um, so there are all the different facings that a player can go. And each time it's like a different sprite, different animation, different art. And there was one checklist, I think, that we all were the most scared of. And what it required was that you would take every character with every item in the game and swing it in every direction that was possible. <laughs> and you would just go check, 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 check. And, and no that, would be, that would be your day or days or weeks. Oh, um, <laughs> so so that, you know, that, that was how it started. Um, and then when we got to Warcraft 3... One of the fun tasks that I got to work on was kind of, I I don't want to say editing. So, you know, pointing out typos more or less on the game script. And so that was my first experience interacting with the story of one of our our games in a meaningful way. So um, I did a lot of that, you know, similar stuff on on Warcraft 3. And and yeah, that was sort of my life as a game tester was, you know, checklists, plans, playtests, reporting bugs, verifying bugs. Um, But the one thing that I think was really great about it was that it really gave me an idea of how games were made and what all the different parts that go through um, that that are needed to make a game happen were. And, you know, one one other funny thing about this time is, you know, you would send these these bugs up to development and you're like, oh, okay, I hope, you know, you you try and be very polite. You don't want (laughs) to, you don't want to piss anyone off. But I, I remember one time I had written up a sound bug and I'm sitting in my cubicle and I'm working. And I, you know, I have the sense, you know, that little prickle on the uh, on the shoulder. I look over, and Mike Morheim is like leaning against the wall of my cubicle, you and he's like, he didn't want to, he didn't want to interrupt me. But you know, back in the day, he he was still like doing engineering tasks, and so I had, the, I just have this experience <laughs> of like, oh my god, like what's happening, and like being so nervous. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, you know, I I I, I, saw, I found this bug. I thought maybe, anyways, like oh, I could try and walk you through it. <laughs> it, was, it was funny. I, I I still remember that. I think I jumped out of my seat. That that first moment where like the one of the boss folks is coming to you and saying like, all right, walk me, th- like show your work. <laughs> it's, just, it's just like school. Show your work. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I guess in the, I wonder. I often wonder like how much. QA positions like that have changed uh, in the last couple decades because y- y- it, it, it seems to go back and forth on like how uh, uh, good those positions are for shifting into something more uh, meaty on the like game design side of a studio. Uh, was that your experience that like you you were really able to like dip your toe into so much of these other things, the, the script editing the bug reporting that you you began to get enough of a, a broad umbrella look at the at a game to say like okay now i can uh, apply for this like associate designer position and like work my way into that i definitely think so i think again i, I can't speak to too much about what the the field is like now but at the time it really gave you an opportunity to see the process but also you know we were very lucky we got to look at the tools and even you know one of the nice things about Blizzard was that they had all these great tool sets. And so, you know, we would use those tools to make test plans and stuff like that. So it was really a great education, you know, like I said, not just in learning about what goes into the game, but you also sort of had this view of how games went like, Oh, you'd hear like, okay, they're, they're working on some concepts. And then you'd see early 
areas and you would sort of test those and then you'd see how they filled in over time. So you really got a sense of, of what the process was like and what it meant to professionally you know, build games. Going from the the gray box to the final product, I gotta imagine, huh? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I uh, so then you switch from that role over to and correct me if I'm wrong because I'm really pulling from like LinkedIn and such, <laughs> but uh, you you became a designer on World of Warcraft, right? Yeah, that's right. I um, I was one of the first quest designers for for World of Warcraft. What 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 is quest design on the original World of Warcraft like? Because like you, I I. I have only dipped my toe into that and other MMOs. Uh, but I have lots of friends who are, you know, diehards and have spent, you know, like 16 different accounts and most of their like life and everything on that. And they like original world of Warcraft seemed to have like a really cool mix of uh, like story direction that you would expect from, you know, a, a, a story that has been crafted by another human being, but also, room for these players to role play uh so what what is quest design like on like original vanilla world of warcraft i think the main goal was that we were looking for a way to provide direction and also to fill the space we'd all played lots of mmo games and and had so much fun with them but we did think that that was a place where we could differentiate differentiate ourselves with basically in having this content and having this direction where the game actually showed you a little bit of the way it was supposed to be played. And that was really the idea behind the quest system. Also, the quests were great for giving you that context and that story that we thought people would want with World of Warcraft. And so a lot of it early on, and and this was, you know, many months, was just figuring out that pattern and that you know, that system and, and basically how it felt to play it and how the rewards felt and how you got led around the areas and how we how many quests we'd give you. Like there were all these different things that we were sort of trial and error and, and figuring out as we were establishing how we were going to set up quests for the rest of, of the world. And then obviously um, we realized how many quests that we needed to make. And then it was a, you know, for the rest of development, basically figuring out, you know, how to make those how to bring life to these worlds and you know how to how to build out the 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 world of Warcraft. What did the um what did kind of like the the team structure uh look like because I I think a lot of people um they, they they'll see like uh oh Chris Avalone wrote this game or Kevin Van Ord who's also been on the show before but actually both Kevin and Chris have been on the show before uh like you know Kevin Van Ord is often like listed as like a writer on Divinity Original Sin 2 and then you dig into it and it's like oh he wrote like two or three companion quest lines, which is still like a immense amount of work, but like it, it begins to trick people into thinking that like one person really uh, wrote this whole fantasy world when usually, at least for big projects like this, it is truly the work of a team. So uh, I, I assume that had to have been the case for WoW. Uh, what what did that team look like and how are you guys bouncing ideas and, and fantasy concepts off of each other? Yeah, so we had a team of quest designers. I think the one thing back then was that all the quest designers also were writers. So we all wrote the quest text and the dialogue that was inside each of our, our own quests. And generally, we would proceed zone by zone. And we would divide them up based on kind of the points of interest, the, the types of monsters there were, or like, hey, there's a cool little town here. Who wants to make the quest for the town? Uh, we actually had this process for a while which was like the the draft basically. And we would mm -hmm. get this whiteboard 
um, Chris Metzen at the time would do these cool zone drawings and we'd have a meeting where we'd decide what monsters go there and what the points of interest are, which are basically just like, oh, here's a little, you know, furball camp or there's a goblin mining operation. Um, and then on the on one side of the board, we would write down all the different areas and monster types and stuff that would basically have to be covered by quests. And then we would just go around and draft like fantasy draft style. Like, what do you want to work on? And, uh, and so, you know, be like, Oh, I want the goblins. That, that would be me. I would always take the goblins. And so, um, you know, you would, he would take that and then the next designer would take this. And then we'd, we'd go off and we'd start um, working on our, our different, um, different sections. And then we'd come back and do playthroughs and edits and all that. So you guys really, uh, obviously, like WoW was getting you know uh, uh, expansions and and growing as a a world and a property all the time. But you guys really got a chance to uh, do your own world building and say like, well, okay, we know that this place is going to look like this, but what lives here? What what works and and breathes and eats here? It, it sounds like you guys had a lot of ownership over uh, the kind of fantasy world and like the the tropes that you were uh building uh for yourself definitely i i think that was you know my first taste of really what it felt like to build a universe and to figure out what made this universe feel alive and what you know what kind of story threads you needed to kind of give players this idea of what was happening and stuff to do and in that time one of the things my favorite things to do was i would drop in on on chris metzen's office and and you know we would just jam over the story of areas or i'd pick his brain about stuff he was interested in or, or stuff I was interested in. So yeah, I think that was like the crash course boot camp into world building and taking a world like Warcraft was, is an amazing first assignment, right? Because we were, there was all this really strong stuff that existed already, but there was also this need to fill in a lot of the blanks and also add to it and, and build it. And, and, you know, it had so much variety. You were really able to, feel like you were building this giant ecosystem that I, I gotta imagine for a, a writer and a like quest designer that's gotta be one of the the scarier assignments not just because it's like oh it's such a big property but because like you said so much of it is already built that you are now like a second wave of quest designers and writers trying to say like well how do we make how do we continue to make this interesting how do we continue to evolve this world right yeah definitely you know and telling the story in a very different way, right, than than what we'd done in the past. We were adding a lot of this environmental storytelling, a lot of this ambient stuff, and we were trying to, you know, put our own spin on what the massively multiplayer games of the time were. And I think, you know, World of Warcraft has such a broad variety of places, environments, you know, types of people who live in there, and it was honestly just so much content and you had to always come up with a new idea, a new way to dress up the quest, some sort of new theme so that everything felt unique. And so that, you know, people could really feel like, you know, one forest area was not the same as another forest area. And like, I I imagine like, yeah, feel a, a sense of ownership over their own adventure too of like, Oh, I've been to this forest. Like, Oh, what's, what's that area? Like, well, it's completely unlike wherever you've been. Yeah. Uh, switching gears a little again there's so there's this like two-year period where you jump over to obsidian and you work on kodor 2 and neverwinter nights 2 uh was this just like a like a oh hey next step in career like i I, you got a job offer and it made sense or was there like you were really excited about working on a a certain project or something like what 
what made you want to uh, jump over there like that? So I love Star Wars. I am obsessed with Star Wars. And at the time, I had more or less read every Star Wars expanded universe thing there was. Like that's, you know, the books, the comics, the, uh, the young adult novels. Like I'd read everything. And I had also recently played Knights of the Old Republic, which was obviously an amazing, amazing game. Not only as a role-playing game, you know, that style, but also just as a, as a Star Wars story. And I had been mm-hmm. so, so blown away with it that, you know, when I found out that down the street there was a sequel, you know, potentially happening, it seemed like there'd be an opportunity for me to make use of this all the hours that I had spent being obsessed with Star Wars, I'm like, oh, you know, I can justify it now. If I could work on Star Wars, then all those hours I spent reading and thinking about Star Wars and rewatching my VHS tapes, you know, See, mom, feel like it was, it. It, was, it was building up to this. Um, yep. And again, like, I love Knights of the Old Republic. I love the characters. I love the world building. I love the story. And I loved how much dialogue there was. So it seemed like it would be a really great opportunity. What, what kind of like... I guess uh, you work on a, a different kind of you're working on a different kind of fantasy there uh and you're you're dipping back into kind of classical uh you know knights and and orcs with like Neverwinter Nights you know if that's a and uh, d property uh what felt like what what were the biggest like lessons in terms of uh just story design that you learned there one of the big things that I got to do for the first time <clears throat> Uh, at Obsidian was obviously working on a game with a tremendous amount of voice acting Hmm. and also a game that was really built around the narrative and dialogue. And so before, right, nothing that I had written really got voiced. It was all intended to be read. So I got a great crash course bootcamp on writing for voice and writing for, you know, dramatic scenes in in a more cinematic style working with like Chris Avalon, obviously he was a really great teacher as far as um, kind of showing me the ropes and downloading his extensive experience. And, and, you know, I was able to kind of shortcut because, you know, he could tell me the, he could tell me the rules and the tricks and the pitfalls. And so I think that was really great. Also kind of being able to see how different writers and designers and narrative people approached storytelling. You know, I think everyone has their own influences and their own style. And I think, um, going there really enabled me to download a bunch of other ways that people worked. And so I think basically learning the craft is really something that I had the opportunity there and would set me up, you know, for the, for the later projects that I worked on. And so then you have this uh, return to Blizzard uh, working on WoW expansions and Diablo three. And it's this like really long, long, long eight year stretch. Uh, I, I hate to like, like blow through it all. Cause like, I'm sure that there's a million <laughs> lessons and life experiences there, but uh, I guess, what was it like to kind of come back and um, revisit a lot of these uh, properties you had worked on now that they were in a fundamentally uh, different place? Yeah. So I had decided to go back to Blizzard primarily to work on Diablo three because, you know, it was the first game that I worked on at Blizzard. It was also um, one of the Blizzard games that I, I really loved, like, and I loved the universe. Um, I think I, I liked the fact that it had this sort of underpinning of, of darkness and sort of the gothic elements, which were really appealing to me. Um, they weren't really quite ready to start development on it. So for a little while, I got to exercise one of my other game design loves, which was um, I worked on the World Events team 
for World of Warcraft, which meant kind of the the Valentine's Day celebrations and the Halloween celebrations. And it was sort of appealed to this part of me that loves like Animal Crossing and loves The Sims and all these kind of sim fun world is world is toy games. And so I got to do that for a while working with um, Pat Nagel, who I worked with many times throughout my career. And so that was like this really fun, just different kind of experience. But then, you know, what I was really excited about was Diablo 3 expanding the world, kind of like what we had done with World of Warcraft and being able to be a part of making that next step. Because I know that one of the things that you know we really wanted to focus on was, was story. And I felt like with the learnings that I had from Obsidian, that it would be a really great opportunity. Well, how about we take a quick break just to get our files uh, squirreled away, and then we will shift to talking about Overwatch, uh, the the game that uh, it's probably arguably like the your name is uh, one of the biggest attached to it, and I would love to pick your brain about that. How's that sound? Okay. All right, welcome back to the 1099, folks. We are here again with Michael Chu, and we're going to be shifting into talking about Overwatch. And if any of you know me, follow me on Twitter, anything like that, you know I uh, am a fiend for Overwatch. Uh, it was honestly one of the like first kind of like competitive multiplayer games that I really got into, and actually, it, I, I, I owe a, a couple of like dear friendships to it. Uh, it is how I met. Uh, well, not how I met, but like how I really got to know uh, Mr. Josiah Renan, the former host of the 1099 and became his roommate here in Los Angeles and become friends with uh, his brother and uh, their mutual friend, Sean. And uh, so I, I owe a lot to Overwatch. And I actually, Michael, you'll you'll get amused by this. I, I interviewed Mr. Jeff Kaplan when I went for that uh, Echo preview for IGN a month or so ago. And... Uh, uh, I told him like, yeah, I think this game means so much to me that I'm actually going to get like mercy tattooed on my arm somewhere. Uh, so wow. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm slowly working towards that. The, the Corona apocalypse changed budget concerns for now, but uh, when things, when things pick back up, hopefully that'll be on the docket. Mercy main, huh? Well, I can't wait oh, to yeah. see the tattoo. <laughs> you, you, you can always tell someone is a good person if they main mercy. Uh, it's just the law, but <laughs> so <laughs> I think that's right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the, the world of Overwatch 2, or 1, uh, rather, haha, is uh, just a, a fundamentally, like, really fascinating bit of uh, world building and, and storytelling to me. So I got to let's start off with when is the first time that, like, you hear, like, hey, we got this project Overwatch uh, that, you know, like, do you want to be a part of it? Did someone ask you if you wanted to be a part of it? Or was this like, a, how did you come to be on the project let me think back cast the memory memory back i think uh what what had happened was we had just finished or we were in the process of finishing reaper of souls and i was looking for kind of what i was going to do next and so i hit up jeff and i asked him you know i'm i'm kind of not sure what what project i'm gonna gonna help out with next or, or what's you know what the next step is and he mentioned oh you know um the timing is interesting because, you know, we've just started talking about something new and he's like, I just had like one conversation with Chris about it or something. And so you know, he's like, Oh, are you, do you have any interest in that? And I was like, Oh, that, that sounds interesting. So um, that was, that was really how it started. Um, the idea was that 
they were exploring new IP and they just needed like a little bit of story help. And so it was actually just supposed to be a few hours a week where I would help out with like the writing and, and stuff like that. Um, and then obviously it, it grew into something much bigger. <laughs> so, so this was, uh, at, at this point in time had like the project Titan like folded already, or was this kind of, uh, your first, uh, uh steps into that world that would become Overwatch? Yeah, this was at the start of, um, actual Overwatch. And I, I feel like, again, I, I don't quite remember. I feel like the development had already started. They were just reaching this point where they needed to start talking about universe and world and characters and that, and that kind of ideas. So, and and then you say like this, this kind of started out as helping them out a few hours a week, uh, like helping them kind of build out the basics of this universe. Did it, I assume it, as the project grew bigger and you became like the lead writer on this, that, that eventually became like your full-time uh, position. Yeah, very quickly it grew out of those few hours, I think, as we realized that what we really wanted to do was build another universe that would stand up, we hoped, with Warcraft and, and Diablo and Starcraft, that that task quickly became very big as we realized that we needed to dig out the story and dig out this very large number of heroes and write them all, talk about the world for building levels. And so, yeah, very quickly it became kind of my 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 total job. And, and I really became, you know, invested and in, in, in deep in the in the world building aspect of Overwatch. What were the, uh, I, I, I re-listened to uh, your GDC, I think like 2016 or 17 talk about Overwatch world building. And uh, there, there's a lot of ground to cover there, but like what were the, the first couple of like major ideas that you had when uh, you really thought like, okay, what's, what is the kind of world I want to build? We always had this idea that we wanted to create an optimistic universe, like this vision of the future where everything went right. You know, we've, we've obviously described it in different ways a future worth fighting for our optimistic future and all that. But I think really it was the sense that like something hopeful and something futuristic. And so I think one of the first things that we had to do was figure out how we were going to make that a reality. And we really settled in, especially given the kind of game it was on the heroes. And we knew that these heroes would really drive what the heart and soul of Overwatch was. And so early on, you know, we put a lot of our efforts into figuring out how to make those heroes great and then sort of building the greater world around them. And so, you know, I think always there was that focus on optimism. I think when we decided that we wanted to set the game on Earth, then very quickly there was this idea, you know, something that I, I cared about a lot, which was this diversity and, and showing characters from around the world and really being able to just explore Earth in the same way that we had explored, you know, Warcraft and Sanctuary and everything. Yeah, getting those um, uh, the 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 sheer like variety of level design in a in a game like Overwatch, where it it exaggerates certain aspects of uh, you know the the geographic like iconography, like a, a giant like tech pyramid or something like that. But it, it it does that classic like good video game world building thing of like here's this breadcrumb that tells you like oh. I, I haven't even begun to scratch the surface of uh, 
what is like the history and culture behind this one corner of the universe, which I think is like really exciting as a player and has to be exciting to successfully tease as a uh, game writer and designer. Yeah, you know, building Overwatch was really interesting because we knew that we weren't going to have this explicit, linear, traditional narrative to rely on. And so I think a lot of ways that we were building the story were how can we make this interesting? How can we make a universe feel rich and feel like it has a lot of history and have enough stuff for people to connect to? Um, And really, how do we get people's interest in it? And how can we get them to invest in something when we can't just give them the story? And so a lot of um, our discussion and a lot of the ways that we approached building the heroes and telling the different stories of Overwatch really revolved around that. I, I one of the things that I do notice runs like really strongly throughout Overwatch is this kind of next generation feel because you have characters like younger characters like May, Tracer, uh, like Winston, sort of, uh, Brigitte. Uh, they they remember what Overwatch was pretty clearly, but they also have this uh, very like strong sense of like the the job isn't done. Uh, and like we need to do things a little differently and maybe fix the errors of our of their elders. Uh, and I think that that's something that like young audiences can really identify with as they see the the world around them with fresh eyes. You know, it's, I'm sure it's a conversation that countless uh, people in their 20s and teens and 30s and uh, otherwise have with their their parents. Uh, and I know <laughs> I certainly feel that way pretty often. Right. Uh, when you look at those kinds of characters and what they seem to uh, look back on in the past and like idolize for the future. Do you think something similar? Uh, Yeah, I got to ask. So one of the things that we were able to take advantage of with Overwatch, and this is by the story by design is that because the cast has this big age range, you know, from, uh, from like Diva and Lucio and some of the younger characters to the kind of original Overwatch generation with Ana and Soldier 76 is that there is this sense of generationality of the story and the cast. And I really think about how the different characters experience the defining events of the Overwatch universe. And, you know, the most obvious one of that, right, is this the Omnic Crisis. And so there's a sense that in these broadly three bands of characters, there are the ones who lived and fought in it. And for them, what happened is a personal, you know, first person experience, right? They, they know and experienced all of that. I think the second group are ones maybe who were like growing up during that period. And so they understand the reality, but at the same time, they weren't entirely able to act upon it. They weren't entirely able to process what was going on. You know, they have the kids memory of what was happened. And then this third group are people who did not live through it. And for them, you know, it's the stuff of stories or something they've seen on the news or seen a video of. It's not real to them. And so it's really interesting to see how those different groups experience things. And I think, you know, one other extension of that is that, you know, Overwatch is very much a story literally and and also fictionally um, about these fresh perspectives and new perspectives. And so one of the things that we got to explore is seeing events and people's reactions to events um, through different eyes or eyes that we hadn't seen before. But, you know, to your, to your original point, um, I think that, I think every generation probably feels that way, right? Like I think everyone, you know, everyone thinks like, oh yeah, you know, we're going to have to 
do our best to solve the problems that were left from us from our parents or whatever. And then obviously I think the next generation, it's inevitable that they will look at the problems that we were unable to to solve or the ones that we introduced and that will become, you know, their quest. I think this is a, a generational thing that happens. And I think, you know, I think the story of heroism that it sort of touches upon is that heroes try to solve the biggest problems that before before them, right? They try and solve, solve all of them, but ultimately they can't. Mm-hmm. And ultimately the things that they do will also have unintended consequences. And so, you know, every generation will try and do its best, but again, there will always be something for that next group, um, you know, to, to step up and, and tackle. And I think that's very much a, a core part of, of Overwatch. I think for me too, like, yeah, the excellent point that, yeah, every generation deals with that and probably has to come to grips with uh, their own failings. And certainly like, you know, uh, we, we, we get to, you know, see what the story of Overwatch 2 will be or what the broader universe story will be. But I'm sure that there will be uh, uh, moments where like characters have to make difficult decisions that they maybe otherwise didn't want to um, uh, bear the consequences of. And I think for me that like, part of Overwatch's enduring legacy and and definitely why I cry watching like the short films is that there are so many of these characters uh, like the, the, the Dr. Winston quote um, dare to see the world as it could be uh, despite having suffered their own tragedies throughout the years. There's aside from the generational stuff, there is a lot of like personal tragedy running through this very colorful uh, surface wise, optimistic game um tracer you know was has a very like dr manhattan kind of backstory uh being displaced through time ryan has his history as like he he messed up he got like half his squad killed and his king killed may you know has like one of the the arguably like most tragic like storylines Widowmaker, etc etc uh was this like this sense of dare to see the world as it could be and kind of persevere through uh, a tragedy or a uh, a difficulty in life was this something that like you had to draw from personally because it, it sounds like you really have a lot of uh, emotional investments in this beyond perhaps what a, a uh, more run-of-the-mill writer might well you know I think the thing about heroism right and what we tried to mine for overwatch right is the sense that being a hero in the best possible circumstances, in theory, should be something that's that's easier to do, right? And I think that the hard thing about heroism is when it is difficult, um, when it does extract a toll from you. And I think that the most interesting heroic characters in fiction historically, you know, you there has to be something in there that either drives them to do what they do or after they've made decisions, challenges them in what they do. And I think... You know, it's funny. It, actually, often people people will mention that to me, like, "Wow, you know, they're like, Overwatch is is bright and, and shiny and optimistic, and and there are a lot of characters who are like trying to do the right thing and and being good, um, and it's and it's so you know bright and and hopeful. But like a lot of these stories have an element of tragedy to them, and you know, I think I think that is one of the things that helps to make these characters interesting. It's something that I'm I'm obviously very interested interested in um in exploring. You know. For myself, you know, I think um, my father passed away when I was when I was quite young, and so that's something that I, I think about a lot. But I think that you know, I think everyone has these tragedies and these these things that either and they can choose either to use them 
as points of strength, or they can, you know, choose to use them to inspire them to do new things. And I think that finding the core of these heroic characters, that's certainly part of it. I, I got to imagine that it, it, it's, it's one of those universal human experiences that, um, even, even so like myself, I'm not a, I don't have like too tragic of a background. I, I grew up a comfortably uh, lower middle class. Um, my parents are still alive and I, I haven't like suffered or anything uh, too much through life. But like in the last uh, 2017, I got diagnosed with uh, rheumatoid arthritis. And I know my audience is probably sick about hearing this, but uh, that was like one of the first big moments in my life where I thought like, oh shit, this is it. And uh I actually, the first person I interviewed for the show was um, Steven Spawn from Able Gamers. And he gave me this very uh, uh, uplifting sort of talk about like, you know, don't live, li live each day like it's your last good day, because there might come a day where your legs don't work anymore. And there might come a day where, you know, your, your eyesight goes or this or that. And it, 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 it sort of parallels a lot of that dare to see the world as it could be. And, you know, even though I'm, I am struggling with like, you know, mental health or, or physical health, I'm still going to do my best to get up in the morning and make some sort of difference. And I think that that's, that's why like when during the, uh, the zero hour short where the, the blizzard introduced overwatch Two, you see all these characters finally kind of coming together and admitting like, yes, we, we know we have, a past that's gray or dark uh but we're gonna be here for each other and we're gonna uh, uh do what we have to do i i think that um I, I i dug through your twitter feed uh and you are a really really big uh tolkien fan right <laughs> uh yes i am indeed so on, on Twitter, you shared a few passages during uh like tolkien day uh including samwise's speech from two towers uh, and then Gandalf's death is just another path, a journey we must all take line. Uh, I, I love Tolkien as much as anybody else. I read the books in high school and I, of course, dragged my mom to let me see the movies when they were coming out, like at the turn of the century. Uh, what, what is it about Tolkien that like really sticks with you and specifically those kind of very uh, classical hope driven passages? Well, you know, the times that we're living in, I think everyone could use a a little uplifting. Yeah. <laughs> um, to be fair, I think I I think that the um, the some of the quotes I gave were not quite as uh, as hopeful. Um, but you know, the thing that I really respect and I love about Tolkien, and and I think it was probably one of my formative kind of science fiction fantasy experiences. Reading the books, I, I still vividly remember reading Lord of the Rings for the first time. And also, I used to love watching the uh, the animated Hobbit, one of my favorites. Mm. But as I read more and got to understand more of how Middle Earth is constructed and everything that went into it, I think it's the tremendous amount of thought and care that went into the building of the universe that is just mind-blowing. You know, I, I think the amount of just consideration that every part of the world and the history and, and the way things are named and the the ways that people refer to each other. I think, you know, I, I have this really big interest in my writing um, of how people, like what names people use for each other. And I had never thought about it until now, but I suspect that a lot of that comes from Tolkien, right? Because every character has four names and 
they each have their own significance and different characters mm-hmm. use them at different times. And so, you know, like with Gandalf, for example. And so um, I think that's really interesting. And then, so I, I had always loved that. And then as far as like approach to the craft and, and how you build universes and express them to people, I am also equally obsessed with the Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings movies. And one of the things that I loved the most was watching the the DVD appendices, which had the kind of behind the scenes stuff. Oh yeah. And those are, those, those are like just as good as the movies themselves. <laughs> exactly. And I think seeing how they were able to tap into all this work and this world building that had already been done was amazing. And then seeing how they were able to bring that to life in their, you know, rendition of Lord of the Rings was just really great. And I think, Again, just the amount of detail and thought and everything that is placed into Middle Earth, I think, is is the thing that inspires me. And then, obviously, the writing itself is, you know, beautiful. I think there's, um, you, you ever you ever hear that like joke or maybe like derisive comment? Um, uh, you you hear about it a lot of like other uh, trashy fantasy novels where it's like. Uh, uh, every fantasy novel has a giant map at the beginning of it now, and like it's almost pornographic uh sometimes where like there an author or a a world designer for a book will uh use this map and like not even bother to like build out anything else about the world just be like oh here's a cool name for this desert up in the north here's this cool name for this like icy region in the south kind of thing and it, it it's like okay that's that's cool that's great but like the world building in the details, the the moment to moment world building, the way characters talk to each other, like maybe isn't as good. So I, I always kind of laugh when uh, someone says like, you know, a map is not the end of world building. And I think that's what like why Tolkien is so fascinating as an author and a world builder is because like by virtue of his background and his like clear adoration for history and whatnot, uh, he made his universe airtight, but he also, like you say, manages to like Frodo and Sam do not talk to each other the same way that uh, Aragorn and Legolas do, or, uh, or that like two members of royalty might, or that a poor person might talk to a Royal person. And that's, those are the tropes and the like linguistics that really help a universe come to life. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, one of the things is people, who are experiencing universe or reading a story or watching a movie, they have so many different ways that they can learn about it. And not all of them are just in the most obvious story sense. A lot of it is, you know, what do you intuit based on um, the relational experience, like how people relate to each other or how you observe people um, in specific situations. And so I, you know, I think that is as important uh, in world building and in storytelling as it is to, as it is to, you know, have a really great, plot and and you know all that stuff i think the interpersonal dynamics of characters is is part of the magic and why people people grow to love characters and that's that's probably why overwatch has countless little uh uh, dialogue interactions between characters you know you 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 hear reaper saying like i'm here to visit an old friend or you hear one character cracking a joke at winston and like it takes him a minute to get the joke or whatever and it's like okay i i now know that like winston sure he's a scientist but like he's that classic like nerd scientist who uh takes a minute to get the like social faux pas that just happened right Uh, i think i think that's one of the challenges of overwatch right is because when you play games um 
you get to experience all this story through how you're a character, like, you know, if in a game where maybe you control one character, how they interact in these different situations. And obviously in games, a lot of that is, you know, shooting or picking up items and stuff. But in Overwatch, you know, there's a very narrow number of things that the hero characters are interacting with. And so oftentimes with the dialogue, what we try and do is to provoke them with something, you know, that you can't see or give them some other stimulus. So it's not just about how, because you know how every character feels about accomplishing something or failing yeah. at something or headshotting you know, someone. Yeah, I, I, you know, you have a great quote too. I think it was from the same like GDC talk a couple of years back, uh, quoting George R. R. Martin saying, uh, quote, I think there are two types of writers, the architects and the gardeners. The architects plan everything ahead of time, like an architect building a house. They know how many rooms are going to be in the house, what kind of roof they're going to have, where the wires are going to run, what kind of plumbing there's going to be. They have the whole thing designed and blueprinted out before they even nail the first board up. And then the gardeners dig a hole, drop a seed, and water it. And they kind of know what seed it is. They know they planted a fantasy or a mystery seed or whatever. But as the plant comes up and they water it, they don't know how many branches it's going to have. They find out as it grows. And I'm much more of a gardener than an architect. It's George R. R. Martin saying all that. <laughs> yes, uh, I love that, that quote. You, you clearly take a lot of uh, uh, inspiration from that sort of line of thinking, right? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know if it's so much that I take the inspiration from it so much that it's just the way that I've learned that I think about things and the way that I approach things. I work with writers and, and storytellers who are the architect type, who know everything. They know exactly where they're going. They have great outlines. And, <laughs> and I think, you know, I'm just, you know, you know obviously to some extent, working in teams and stuff like that you need to have some outlines but i i think i am much more of a of a gardener i'm much more of someone um who sort of feels it out as i as i go i try and think about these characters as as real characters and then you know challenge them and and it's the it's the corniest thing you know people will say this but then like sometimes they surprise me or you know i can't force them to do um you know what they don't want to do Right. Like when um, uh, uh, you don't necessarily encounter, I think, too much in Overwatch because like the, the gameplay is very defined. But when you have a like a Witcher or something like that's a very clearly defined character with his own backstory. And uh, but there is a there's a level of like I I as a player can't make Geralt do this like horrible criminal thing uh, like, you know, killing a dog in the street or something like that. Uh, but that is a a form of storytelling that's important to have that more like i guess that that would be architect style uh where yeah you're you're existing within a character rather than uh maybe a full-blown like rpg where you get to create your own legend kind of thing yeah mm -hmm. yeah and <laughs> it's funny I, I have lots of stories too of, you know when i'm when i'm writing something like a lot of my editors and stuff can be quite frustrated with me because they've had this experience where I like give them a draft of something and they're like, okay, that's cool. Like a few comments here and there, a couple notes, clean it up. And then I'll come back in a week. And I'll be like, so I rewrote a third of it because, you know, I just, yeah. I, I realized it, it, it didn't feel right. And I had to go in a different direction. Um, and so that, that has certainly happened in my kind of prose writing, but yeah, I mean, you know, to an extent, it's not reasonable to just not know where you're going. And I think that what I, what I sort of take away from that, and, and I think the ultimate goal is, you know, let these characters um, 
be themselves almost let them live their lives and let them have their their desires and make sure that when you're telling stories that the structure of what you're trying to tell doesn't impose so much on the on these you know heroes that they start to feel like you know they're not doing what you want them to do yeah and I, I think that um, I'm going I'm to ask you a question that kind of leads into another question. But uh, obviously, uh, like you, you say, you, you've said in multiple interviews over the years and like your GDC talk that uh, diversity isn't just nationality. And uh, there's clearly been a lot of work in Overwatch to have this diverse cast uh, and to uh, try and represent them the best. So I guess like uh, going, going into Overwatch, um, what were uh, the sorts of uh, direct, like it, you're, you're, you're an Asian American man. So obviously you, you must, you may have, uh, stronger feelings than a like white person who doesn't, ha- who has a like bigger level of privilege, uh, to think about these things, I guess. What, how important was that sense of diversity and extending that beyond, uh, just saying, oh, this person's from, um, uh, Egypt or whatever. Actually, I, I kind of remembered what I was actually going to ask is like, uh, when you're writing these characters for a game where we're uh, uh, inhabiting them in that way where we can't like make them do something that they wouldn't want to do, but also there's room to redefine them as the, as time goes on, I guess, how do you make sure that you're being respectful of a cast of diverse characters uh, while also uh, being sure you don't like write yourself into a corner or, delineate the story in any way so you know obviously diversity is something that's very important to me it's important to the overwatch universe and i think when we set out to take earth and do the overwatch version of earth it was really important to us that we try to represent as much as we could the different places in the world and different cultures different historical things and different art and everything different different types of types of people um, it is, of course, challenging because, um, you know, it's it's one thing to to try and do these things, but then to try and do it well is kind of this dual, like, it's, it's a challenge, right? Because, you know, like, there's only so much about different cultures, for example, that I know or any writer knows. And so there's a certain amount of research and, and you know, talking to people and, and kind of doing your homework to try and get things as good as you can. And obviously, you know, it's, you you make mistakes. I've made mistakes many times. Um, But I think the other thing is this constant vigilance. Um, You know, you, you, you have to always be humble in the way that you're approaching these things and, and sort of understand that there's a lot about everything that, that you don't know that I don't know. Um, And so trying to fill in those blanks and, and is, is important. But, um, you know, I think the other thing that's important is that when you're approaching these characters, um, these characters are not defined by any single aspect of their origin, of their birth, their nationality, or, or anything like that. You know, that is just one aspect. And so we, you know, we try and t- to touch on them. But it's also important to think about these characters as the sum total of the things that happen to them. Obviously, I mean, fictionally, right? Like, what are the things in their backstory that define them? Um, what were the things that only exist in the Overwatch universe that helped to define them? And so I think you know, it's a balancing act where you're trying to, you're trying to present a character who represents a group um, and, and both from like, you know, the nationality and everything. But I think also to make successful characters, they have to represent 
other groups too, because one of the things about these heroes, I think, is that we want you to be able to empathize or connect with someone who you might look at and not think that you could, who's someone who comes from a different background, because I think ultimately at the end of the day, you know, our, our shared humanity or, or there are things that all of us have experienced that we can see in other people. And I think that is kind of the level of representation that we're also shooting for when we make these heroes. Who's the, who's the character that you most relate to? <laughs> um, <laughs> I, um, I would have to say oh, it's tough. Like, Probably more of the the nerdy scientist types, and it, it might depend on my mood a little bit. Um, I think most often people will say May, um, and I think you know, kind of when Winston's being a big nerd, like sometimes I, I empathize with that. Um, sometimes people say that uh, I I will have a, a Moira streak in me. Um, oh boy, <laughs> she's one of my favorite. She was one of my favorite characters to write because I just like that kind of dry, understated humor. But um, you know, like all of the characters have a little bit something, you know, that's, that's just kind of when you're writing something, when anyone's writing something, it's, it's just part of the process. You, you have to find something that resonates with you to, to be able to kind of infuse it with life. And so then jumping from that, I, I think it's, it's important to ask that like, this is a podcast largely about like asking people like what kinds of uh, lessons that they learned over the years. And I, one of the uh, more like important stretches of Overwatch's history still and still to this day is the fan community asking like hey we think it's it's far past time for a black female character a, a playable character uh and i i know that like at a company like blizzard especially not every decision is in your hands there's a lot of things that like you just can't control and that you're along for the ride too but i do i do genuinely want to ask like hearing those comments and that feedback as a game developer and a writer what do you think you kind of learned from all that experience in terms of uh, uh, addressing the the needs of a community like that? Because we do, we do see uh, it for the trailer in Overwatch Two, Sojourn is a uh, black female character, and it seems like okay, here's here's this getting addressed. But what did you learn uh, during that time personally? It's a challenge, right? Because the way that Overwatch's release was set up and getting heroes out. You know, the, the heroes that we ended up creating can be made for many different reasons. You know, mm -hmm. I think that obviously hearing community feedback is an important part of the Overwatch experience and something that was important to the to the team. And I think in that case, that was one where, you know, Sojourn existed as a as a character, you know, in the early days of in the early days of Overwatch, because, you know, at that point we were still thinking about a lot of potential hero characters and, and what they could be. And so, you know, for me, I always thought that, you know, she was a integral character. You could see her all the way back from that, like Anna origin story. And, you know, I think it's hard, but it's important to, to hear. <laughs> it's important to hear what people want. And um, that is certainly one that we heard a lot over the years and uh, hopefully will, <laughs> hopefully will be, be addressed. But um, yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's, it is important though. Um, but it's hard because the world is is so big, right? And mm -hmm. you know, we, we we there are so many different aspects that go into each hero, and so you know, unfortunately, she wasn't able to to come out earlier in the process. Yeah, I think uh, uh, all allowing room for like you know the 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 constructive criticism to continue. I think one of the things that like living with uh, my my friend who works for EA and and making more friends amongst the game developer communities taught me is that 
game development is a long, long thing. You, you think about like how funny or like kind of amusing it is that so many games take three to five plus years to come out and you think like, well, wow, what, like, uh, what, what was all that time spent to those, you know, countless hours spent on and game development is a slow beast that it's like, it's like steering a ship and it takes time to turn that ship. And, uh, I, I, I don't, I sympathize, uh, with anyone who has to steer that for sure. And, you know, speaking of, uh, uh like community responses to Overwatch, I think I, I'd be a fool to not touch on uh, Overwatch has a, an incredible fan community. Um, I, I have poured over countless f- pieces of fan art, stories, zines, uh, and there's this huge LGBT community in the the Overwatch fan community. Uh, people making stories about you know Soldier and Gabriel Reyes or other or like Lena and uh, her uh, girlfriend and. I'm sure that like as the person who helped like really define what this world is and like left it open for, of course, fan interpretation left and right. uh, What what surprised you the most about like what the fan kind of art and content community glommed onto in terms of like defining the characters for themselves, you know? Yeah, obviously no one could have expected how much people would fall in love with some of these Overwatch characters and the amount of, community creations both in art and story and just everything that people cosplay everything people have made is completely mind-blowing and and flattering in in just the most amazing ways and i think the thing that really i found the most interesting is how much people became interested not just in the the broad strokes of the character like obviously people people like that right they like the core and the essence of what the, the character is but I was really impressed and, and blown away by how much people wanted these characters to, you know, wanted to understand these characters' full lives, like what they did for fun or what, you know, what they were like when they weren't out there being heroes. And I think it was the exploration and the curiosity into a lot of that that really uh, has created some of my my favorite community creations. And I think that it's uh, it certainly does have uh, have a life of its own. Yeah, no, I, um, the, the Overwatch fan community, uh, it's literally endless. The, the level of like art and, um, just the way people have personalized, uh, characters to, to represent a part of themselves that maybe the game isn't able to facilitate. And I think I, I actually, I, I dug back through my, um, my, my Overwatch merch collection here and I've got the uh the like first collected edition of the comics right um and the a big turning point for Overwatch was uh the comic the Christmas comic that introduced uh Tracer's girlfriend and you know it it, it wasn't played up as like a, oh they're great friends it was like full on smack on kiss on the lips like yes they are in a relationship and like she's our our cover character like you know she's not some like tertiary character uh, and I, I double checked on like you were the um, like the correct me if I'm wrong like the script writer or just like the the general writer for that comic right? Uh huh. Yeah, that's right. Well, well, tell me about that process and making sure that um, you know it, it, it was one respectful of the LGBT community, but also like introducing this uh, new side of the Overwatch universe. So there were really a few things that Reflections was uh, built around, and I think one of them obviously 
was I thought it'd be fun at the end of the year to do this sort of um, story that wasn't necessarily centered around the classic, you know, shooting the bad guys and and, and that kind of stuff. So, um, and one thing I really wanted to do was to have an opportunity to show that these heroes and the way that we thought about these heroes is that they do have lives outside of you know, their day jobs or night jobs as they were for some of the characters. And um, I think, you know, when approaching Tracer, we always knew that she was lesbian, but it wasn't something that could express itself well in six on six PVP shooter. Right. <laughs> and so I think this idea that getting to explore more of the personal lives of the characters um, gave this opportunity and, you know, let us peek into the world a little bit. And I think, you know, the other thing I, I want to say, and I'll get back to talking about Tracer a little bit about reflections is that it is also, I, I really wanted to embrace the idea of this sort of holiday comic, this year end comic. And one of the things that I, I wanted to express is that, um, you know, like the holidays are difficult for people and oh, yeah. it's not all just happy and celebratory. And there are a lot of different aspects to it and a lot of different emotions. And I think that all of them are okay. And all of them are sort of fine for, for you to experience and also for you to see, you know, your hero's experience. But at the end of the day, with Tracer, I think the guiding light for me was that there is no, you know, she should be able to experience the world and express herself in the same way that any of the heroes would. And so when approaching her part of the story, you know, that was very much the guiding light. And that's what I, I wanted to bring out that in this optimistic view of Overwatch future, right? Um, there is nothing out of the ordinary. It is accepted. It is celebrated. And that, you know, her love can be expressed and experienced just like any of the other characters can, you know, as you see when you get to um, drop in on every character's sort of experience of their relationships or, or what's happening with them at the time. Well, Michael, as we as we wrap up here, I think I'll ask you just two last questions and feel free to, to blow through them or take as long as you <laughs> like with them. But I, uh, I got to ask, you know, 20 years at Blizzard, is no joke that's that's longer than a lot of people have been alive uh and uh i i we've talked a lot about the lessons that you've kind of learned over those years but uh overall like how do you think that you have changed as a person or as a uh creator uh of games uh in your 20 years at blizzard wow yeah um you know easy question I know. <laughs> like like i said i my career and i feel like i really um, grew up my adult life, right? Spent working at Blizzard. And so um, there's a lot of things that have changed. I think um, kind of what's important to me has definitely ha has definitely sharpened. And I think that the big takeaway from everything that, that, that I'm sort of um, focusing on is that I really and truly believe in building these amazing universes that have depth and, and engage people and people can relate to. And I think the part that goes along with that is that you know, I want to um, tell these stories and, and find ways to, you know, continue to highlight diversity and to be able to tap into some of these stories and voices that, that we don't usually hear from or haven't been heard before. And so I think, you know, as I've, as I've grown as a creator, this is something that I've realized really resonates with me and is really important to me. And I, and that's sort of, I think, you know, the next step of, of, what I'm looking at and, and what I've really learned from the experience. And, you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully I, I've, I'll, I'll, I'll have some knowledge to uh, take with me on that next challenge. 
And and as for that next challenge, and I'm sure that like like any uh, you know game developer taking their next step, there's only so much you can talk about. So I wanted to ask just quickly about uh, Overwatch Two. You know, there, what does it feel like for you as the person who helped uh, really birth this world and and what it's meant to uh, you know its its many players? Uh, what's it sort of feel like to leave that project and leave it in the next set of hands? Well, I'm looking forward to being able, being able to experience Overwatch 2 as a as a fan now. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Overwatch team is one of the most talented group of individuals that I've ever worked with. It was a complete joy to build Overwatch over the years. And I think that the thing that is really great and that has contributed to why Overwatch has sort of the the feeling of love and care from its creators that it does is that the team feels it in their bones. They, they understand, they speak Overwatch. And so I think that um, it's obviously in great hands. I think that uh, it'll be exciting to see, you know, how it, uh, how it changes from, from what I might've uh, thought would happen. And I think uh, I'm excited to be able to have that experience. Cause you know, that is, that is one part that I haven't had before. And so uh, it'll be fun to be able to see it from the, uh, from the other side. It's a lot. It's a lot like parenthood. You get to you, you. You are you are shoving that kid out the door and saying, "Good luck. I wish you the best. I'll be here to help you if you need." But you are, uh, you are on your own. And there's there's a, a sadness, but a, a beauty in that as well, right? Absolutely. Well, Michael, thank you so much. I, I will admit, uh, <laughs> coming into this podcast, I was like a little nervous. I'm like, oh gosh, I love Overwatch so much. I hope I don't fanboy out too much. But uh, this has been easily one of the the best podcasts I've had in uh, a good long while. And I, I would like to thank you for you know taking a good chunk of time out of your day to uh, reflect on all the lessons you've learned over the years. Um, it means so much to me as both a fan of Overwatch and someone working, you know, in the the broader sphere of games industry and media. So, uh, best of luck with everything that happens next for you, man. And uh, where can people uh, find you on Twitter if they want to uh, follow your next steps? <laughs> sure, um, I'm uh, West of House on Twitter and Instagram, and then I have a website at uh, michael-chu.com. And folks, you can find a new episode of the 1099 every week here on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and everywhere else you get your podcast. Uh, and we will be announcing a new slate of guests as soon as we lock those things down. And once again, hope all of y'all are staying safe and cozy and reach out if you need anything from us. And yep, folks, we will see you next time. Uh-huh.